Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with Chris Samer, the Managing Director of Harvest Builders and former co-founder of Skip the Dishes, something which became a remarkable Canadian success story. In our conversation, Chris and I discuss a number of things, including how he co-founded, built, and sold Skip the Dishes, which really is a remarkable David versus Goliath success story. You have to remember that he and his team were up against some of the biggest names in the industry, including Uber Eats, Fudora, DoorDash, and so on. At one point, they had over 80 competitors in the space. What's great is that they're a Canadian success story that against all incredible odds, were able to successfully establish a two-sided marketplace and then go on to get backed by some excellent VC funding and ultimately exit the company for hundreds of millions of dollars. In Canada, unfortunately, this just isn't common enough. Since then, Chris has gone on to establish Harvest Builders. Harvest Builders is a tech hub for supporting the launch and growth of remarkable technology companies across the prairies. Based in Calgary, Alberta, Harvest is a hub for activating untapped potential and helping Canadian entrepreneurs really follow the playbook that made Skip the Dishes successful. And as of publishing this episode, the team at Harvest are already showing the power of their platform. One of the companies they're co-building is Neo Financial, which is gaining huge momentum in disrupting the Canadian financial services industry. To say that Neo is gaining traction is an understatement, as they just raised a $50 million Series A, backed by some of the most notable VCs, including Peter Thiel. This is a great conversation with a local entrepreneur who's demonstrated that Canadian tech companies can compete on a global scale. Enjoy this episode as there's tons to learn in this one. On the line, I have Chris Samer, who's the Managing Director and CEO of Harvest Builders. Chris, thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Corey. So what I'd like to do is kick off our conversations with a brief on yourself to give the listeners some background. You certainly have a remarkable story, and I think there's a lot we can learn from it. So thank you for making the time. Perhaps the best is to hand it over to you so you can give us that background. Sure, Corey. Yeah, so let's see. I'm going to start with uh, where I grew up. So like many tech Canadians here at home, a lot of us have upbringings in what more kind of humble beginnings in terms of small cities and like opportunity for, for myself. I grew up in a small town in Prince Edward, Saskatchewan. It's uh, about 35,000 people. And my brothers and sister and I have always had the aspiration of one day building a company. And we grew up at a time when really the opportunities of the West were looking towards the oil and gas sector of Alberta or becoming an accountant or a doctor. But there really wasn't an opportunity in these small remote rural areas to really get the opportunities to learn the, how to take the reins of a business. So for myself and my siblings, we set out in a traditional career paths. Mine was software engineering. I went to the U of S, Saskatoon University. 
And along the way, like of course about eight to 10 years, we sought out uh, international experience and consulting experience to get exposure that we wanted to, to be able to use so that one day we could come back to the prairies and to be able to create an opportunity. And for me, that was skip the dishes. About 10 years into my career, my younger brother was banking overseas in London, UK, and ordering a lot of food on late nights uh, as a bank and ordering food from a company called Just Eat. This is the same company that ended up actually acquiring a business down the road. So we took the business model of Just Eat, which was really a, a two-sided marketplace where you know, a customer orders food from a restaurant and the restaurant delivers its food, brought it to back to the uh, mid-markets of North America, added the delivery component, improved the model, and scaled it up from there. Where I'm now, uh, fast forward the clock about the next eight years of building that business to about a $5 billion market cap venture, I've left the reins as CEO to now take the reins as the managing director uh, and CEO of Harvest Builders, which is really, it's, it's a venture build a platform, but it's a nonprofit that works with federal, provincial, and municipal or, uh, government bodies with academia, universities, and post-secondary institutions, and local ecosystem platforms uh, like accelerators and incubators to help fill the gaps and leverage the learnings from Skip the Dishes for how we grew and scaled that business in the city of Winnipeg to be able to capitalize on that and build a playbook for other ventures and other entrepreneurs to use. I really like what you're doing here. And the background of coming from the prairies of Canada, I mean, that's not really the, there's no tech hubs in, in the prairies of Canada. So being able to do what you did, and now what I see, and I think it's incredibly important, is being able to take that experience and apply it to helping Western Canadian or Canadian firms actually become tech innovators, I think is what we need in a big way. So I'm excited for what you're doing. Can we go into more details about Harvest? And in fact, I didn't realize you guys were a nonprofit. I find that interesting. But how does that model work? And what are you looking to do with the companies and the partners you bring on? You bet. So the reason why we started Skip, I'll get to Harvest right away here. The reason why we started Skip in the prairies versus going to London or the Torontos, the world, is because our aspiration was always to be able to one day give the opportunities back to the next generation that we didn't have growing up in that small town. So what Harvest brings to the table as a nonprofit is to do just that. What we're trying to do is that we're the point in life where we could you know, retire at a beach somewhere or somewhere else. But as entrepreneurs, we are really motivated by the value we can create. So as a nonprofit, I had the opportunity to work with uh, several funding partners. Most recently, we had Opportunity Calgary Investment Fund invest about $4 million for securing our headquarters here in Calgary. Prior to that, we had the federal government to invest $4.9 million through the Western Economic Diversification Fund. And what Harvest brings to the table is being able to take those federal grant funding and create a platform that is self-sustainable. And it provides the expertise of how to bring in a CTO from Silicon Valley into Calgary, how to create a marketing strategy in the digital age as performance marketing, or even simply as how to make sure your bookkeeping accounting is right so that when it comes to fundraising time, that you're able to go through due diligence more quickly. Hmm. Interesting. And then how does it become sustainable? self-sustainable with as being a nonprofit? I mean, are you participating as a, an equity partner in the, the companies you work with or how does that work? You got, so uh, as a nonprofit, it's not a charity. So it still has to be a break even from a cash standpoint. So the way that we were able to get the sustainability is really two different sides to a model. One, there's a for cash engagement. So what we're doing is providing those services, uh, critical services at each stage of growth, from early stage to growth stages of a business make them available in these markets like Calgary, like the Edmontons and Winnipegs, 
that don't normally have those type of services that would exist in the Silicon Valley or Toronto. Now we do that for fee, so we don't undercut the market or flood the market for services. So we try to use come in a little closer to the bottom market, and we work very flexibly with our partners. So say if a, a company needs to build its engineering capability, what we do is come in as advisors and help them understand the role of engineering and product and help craft out a hiring plan. And actually we use our recruitment services to recruit that CTO or principal engineer into the organization. And that's at a cost, but again, it's at the bottom market cost. The other mm -hmm. side, when it comes to equity participation, our team of builders, Harvest itself, the employees have the opportunity to take sweat equity into their own ventures they can build from scratch. So it actually allows from a venture building standpoint, early on equity participation through the employee stock option plans for Harvest staff itself. So as revenue is generated through the cash side, the team is able to take some measured risks in companies that would have synergy with other companies they create already. So think FinTech to be able to have uh, maybe a banking tech company and have a, alongside it an insurance tech company. There's a lot of synergy there. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the lens we look at for portfolio lenses. You sweat equity in companies that would be more internally generated and still use cash for the other gateways. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I want to come back to more about Harvest later on in our conversation because I think you can speak really intelligently to some of the problems we're facing in Canada and perhaps some of the solutions that are coming along. But why don't we dive into your experience with Skip the Dishes? Because that became a runaway success. And, you know, in my intro, I, I said that, you know, you've been on a roller coaster and obviously that was a huge success, but it couldn't have been easy. It couldn't have been smooth sailing all the way. So I'd love to get into your experience there. And can you start us off with how you and your brother started it in kind of the early days, and then we can get into some discussion around financing and some lessons learned? Sure. Corey, I don't think there's any entrepreneur, successful entrepreneur, that would say that their venture was easy. So I totally agree with that statement. <laughs> so for us, at the time we started to get the dishes, I was working in the resource sector at a company called Chemical Uranium Mine. My younger brother was overseas in London. And we weren't born into wealth, so we didn't have a lot of money other than the cash we saved up. So we had a necessity being creating a company in the prairies. We had a bootstrap from early from day one. In fact, we didn't actually raise capital up until the point where we were already uh, generating about uh, I think six million in revenue. So we bootstrap. And when I say bootstrap, I'm talking about like uh, getting a nice little you know the car we had. I got I think a Ford Taurus, and I spent a lot of sleepless nights uh, in that car, taking support you know orders. Uh, to do sales calls, uh, working with my brother, and, and you know, did, I was on, on the field too. And so we put a lot of IOUs, a lot. We, I think still a lot of friends' cases of beer at this point. <laughs> and uh, it's basically that for about four years. We really bootstrapped hard. And we, what was key to our success was really that we capitalized on the entrepreneurial spirit that you find the Paris. In a city like Winnipeg, because, simply because there aren't these type of opportunities, you're able to cultivate a culture earlier on of people who are willing to do whatever it takes to win to be able to put that suit in the map. It's a little sense of pride that really drives that winning attitude. And that's largely key to our success. Hmm. I want to touch on something there. And that's something that where Harvest is now, that's something that Calgary used to have. And I hope that doesn't come across as a, a slag on our city, but we need to rebuild that sense of pride and that backing of you know, kind of the, the winning mentality and supporting our companies. And I'm going way off track here, but I just want to say, like, I, I really look forward to a time when we are beyond oil and gas. I think oil and gas is a crucial part of our economy nationally, mm -hmm. but I think as a province and as a city, we have to get beyond it. And I look forward to that time when we can start to stand up and get behind highly successful early stage companies that are growing from the roots of our city and our people. 
I couldn't agree more with that statement too. I think having moved to Calgary this about a year and a half, two years ago, it's pretty evident from an outsider coming in that there's a bit of identity crisis going on. And here you have uh, the Alberta. It's a, it leads in large part to the, the resource sector of Canada and the, the economy. And what's happened now is that it's getting beat down. And then you have, the, of course, the political friction going on nationally as well. It doesn't help. And so as Albertans, to be the leader for so long and to go in a point now we have to basically decide the path of future and the future in the world has changed. It's no wonder it's a bit of a change or a kind of a cultural crisis we're going on here. The good news, in my perspective, is that there's a strong foundation to build upon. Well, I guess it's not done. It's just changing perhaps a bit for the future. But if we're able to act quickly and swiftly with the support of, you know, of government and then, you know, private sectors, there's a real opportunity that you can emerge much stronger and on top of the innovation and be an innovation leader work globally. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the coming weeks and months, but our role at Harvest is to, to help be a catalyst for that change. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get back to skip the dishes because, mm-hmm. I mean, to bootstrap something to $6 million in revenue, especially when it comes to financing, is a remarkable thing to do. I mean, that is... Every interview I've done with financiers and my past experience in the business, it's if you can demonstrate traction, you can start to negotiate your terms. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're coming in with an idea that's half-baked or if you've kind of fallen behind and haven't hit some milestones, it's a completely different story. So tell me more about building up to that $6 million mark. And I think it's interesting you did it in Winnipeg there as a starting point. Where did you go from there? What was it like when you started to say, we need to raise some money? This is a real deal. Let's quit sleeping in the car. <laughs> when we need to raise money, I mean, day one, how do we, I mean, again, either had wealth to put into or if we were in the valley, it'd be a much different story. Now, you play the cards you have. And for us, being there, we're bootstrapping. We, and we, we didn't have a, a ton of experience prior to this in, in building companies. We were very similar in a cliche to many entrepreneurs in the practice. So earlier on, had we had the, the hindsight and the, the experience we have today, it would be a different story. We would have probably gone to the Valley and looked at fundraising and look into the trajectory we want and feel it appropriately. Now, we just didn't have that option. So for us, we we're out of necessity. We had to double down, really look at, you know, uh, at adding value at every part of the stage of the equation. And it is a constant game of growing, say, you know, 5% each week and then reinvesting in the growth capital. It was nonstop. So that's kind of what our journey was. So getting to 6 million, it's one of those things where it was a hyper obsessive, relentless focus on looking at the whole delivery cycle. We'll say that it takes 30 minutes, 45 minutes, or reverse engineer that down to every minute and figure out ways, how do you squeeze out an extra 2% efficiency? How do you get a better experience at every stage of the, the game? Now that translated, you know, that manifests itself into a competitive product. And to this point, um, at one point, Corey, we had about 80 competitors in that North America alone. Mm-hmm. And it, we got caught up in a bubble where our counterpart DoorDash had raised, I think it was one day they raised about $80 million. We raised our first $800,000. <laughs> yeah, so long story short here, that same obsessiveness and the frugality of looking at the value creation, fast for the clock to the end, it actually became a competitive strength. And one very important one that when DoorDash was raised that amount of money, it's very easy to throw money at problems. And logistics, it's all about dollars and cents. So at the end of the day, we were actually able to outpace DoorDash and Greetswell is still in leadership here. And we got to the size of about 20 times DoorDash's size off of about one, about a 50th of funding. So it was the first company worldwide to be profitable in delivery. It still is. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting that sometimes the constraints can bring innovation and to be competitive strength. 
Hmm, absolutely. It's, I think if anything, it's, I mean, well, it's, it's a lot of things, but certainly inspirational to hear that because you know, I'll give you an example. One of uh, the interviews I did with a gentleman named Charles Plant, he's done a ton of research on Canadian innovation and what it takes to be a world-class company. And by a world-class company, we, you know, we tend to say a billion-dollar organization, a unicorn, or in Canada, as we've you know, come to call them, narwhals is the term he uses. So what Charles said is that you know, if you have an idea, and it's a very cutting-edge, innovative idea that has market fit, and you're in Canada, you can almost guarantee there's three to five people in the U.S. who have that exact same idea and are probably at the same point you are. But in Canada... We might only be able to raise that 800000 Well, on the flip side, you go across the border and they raised eight to 10 to, I think, did you say 80 million? And that's a very different story because that money can go into sales and marketing and keep on getting reinvested for finding that scale and finding that market domination is really what you're after. But what you're saying and what I think is so fascinating was you were able to do this despite all of those competitors who had so much money and you won out. So that's, man, hats off to you and your team. Thank you, Corey. I mean, it's definitely, it took uh, many years and hours to get there. But I think one of the takeaways that I like to share with entrepreneurs is, first of all, I mean, forget Hollywood, forget all like the sexiness that glorification comes to entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurs have been around since the, you know, the economies existed, and there's nothing sexy about it. It just comes down to, to being pragmatic and look for areas of opportunity and look at your strengths. So in Canada, we have many strengths, especially in, in contrast to our country in the South. And it's been really a bit smart and thoughtful about what those strengths are and how to best use them to compete on the global stage. Hmm, interesting. Now, what was it like, or actually, we, let's take this question here is, how have your perspectives changed after having been through this, building the company and seeing an exit come through it? I mean, you touch on the fact that like, being an entrepreneur is not, is not a Hollywood kind of thing. It's, you get a lot of scar tissue. But what did you take away from it? And what perspectives did you take then and that you lean on now? Sure. I think the first thing I really realized immediately, as well as even today, is just how faulted we are as human beings. <laughs> I huh. learned really quickly my weaknesses. And every day I learned about where my breaking points are. And you saw that quickly your friends and colleagues. I work with your brothers too. Like you see how we're all pushing hard. We're all you know, smart people and individuals, but we're faulted. And it really, in hindsight, I mean, what I appreciated best of the journey is just learning who I was and as an individual and identify where my weaknesses are so that we could find other individuals to complement that. And that really has been a learning ingredient for us, even our new ventures. So we created with Harvest, as New Financial, as a few others, about four or five networks here. And um, it's the main ingredient, it's starting to important people, as all investors probably say in the early stage. And it's continues to be people throughout the culture and whatnot. So the more maturity and awareness, emotional intelligence that your early stage founders have, the more likely they are able to survive and adapt and pivot because they are cognizant of where their shortcomings are and when to look to ask for help. Hmm. It's an interesting one there. The, the self-awareness, I think, goes a long way. And actually, I've heard this a number of times from some very seasoned financiers is that self-awareness leads to better communication. And being able to communicate your shortcomings and the problems you're having in a way that it can put yourself in a vulnerable position with the person who's writing the check, but it can actually be a superpower in being able to build that trust. And you start to lead to a speed of trust and the ability to build a relationship that's been 
test it because hard times have been properly communicated. So true, isn't it? It's kind of a very similar to any relationship in life that you have as a human being. Like uh, without humans, what are we more than just a bunch of processes and technology? I mean, humans are key ingredient, right? Voice computers. <laughs> often though, Corey, I mean, I choke around about having 3,000 employees. I mean, some days I wish it was as simple as having like computers instead, you know? <laughs> yeah. We're complex creatures. And I like to equate sometimes to like just looking at your relationship in life, like whether it's professional, but also personal. If you're going down the path of, you know, of marriage and if you're looking to raise children, these are the more chance of likely to have success. And that comes down to your ability to communicate and to be able to understand a different person at the side of the table and to have common vision and goals, philosophies or culture about how to raise them and whatever your goals are as a couple. It can be extrapolated to any kind of relationship, including business. And mm-hmm. when you deal with the startups and investors, it's a long-term relationship. And the more appreciation and understanding you have and, and through communication, I mean, share those personal goals, philosophy, how to approach conflict, the more chances you have to be successful when those arise. Yeah, and I think there's a, a point to be made that it's easier to divorce your spouse than it is an investor. Uh, so could be tested. I agree. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about financing and investors. Can you walk us through financing of Skip the Dishes? And what were those moments like? I mean, your brother was an investment banker, so he would definitely have some perspectives, but that's not all of the equation. What was it like when you received your first money and how much did you raise and what were the series? You know, can you paint the picture for us? Sure. So my role in Skip the Dishes was largely about the, the, the building side. So I started as a CTO. I quickly shifted over to more of an operational role and I built up as leading more than day-to-day and growth of the organization. Now, my brother Josh and another co-founder, Anna Chow, would basically have done all the lifting and I think all the credit for the fundraise. Now, I can speak to what they did and how we approached our growth. So earlier on, again, having no brand equity and being for the prairies and going against uh, a bit of a bubble at the time was 80 plus competitors and raising large funds. All the VCs, large VCs have already started to stick it out and went bet on the horses. Now, the early years, the first three, four years to raise a first million dollars is largely, it can almost be a Hollywood movie now where um, my brother would use tactics like, well, first of all, you network galore. So you go on and you try to build your brand credibility by talking to somebody of worth, talking to their colleagues, you work up the ladder that way. But you or use tactics where you go into an office and you go talk to the secretary and you look around the corner trying to get an meeting with one of the investors and you see someone's name take Mike there. So you make leave, you just ask the secretary, say, oh, hey, I'm here to see Mike. And he says, okay, so I sit here for a second. And then she steps out, you sneak behind the door, go talk to the investor and make the introductions like the, the classic. <laughs> All that stuff. We took every trick of the book. And my brother was incredibly resourceful in terms of how to bolster our position, being that we came from, you know, the high risk environment of, of Canada and the prairies to put us on par with investors at the world stage. So that was our early years. Now, when traction speaks for itself. So at that point, we started, you know, generating revenue and winning and beating these competitors. We struck an intention. I know regular stare, but still, but then we started getting investors coming to us. And to the point where you just got a lot of attention asking, why is it possible that you're being profitable from day one, you're growing without really any funding, but yet my other investments are now burning cash and I'm bleeding dry right now. So that changed equation. So having traction and proof points really instrumental in fundraising for us is really key. And to the point where finally at the end, Justique came along the way a few times at various stages. And what made sense for us to exit the $200 million was really one that as, as entrepreneurs, we have a mission and vision to accomplish. And for the company, that was to you know, have food delivery, logistics, and power across the globe. So through this exit, it helped us advance our mission and vision to so go faster. 
And it made sense for, of course, economically for investors. But we were able to take our product from one country from about 24 million revenue at the time of sale, 300 people. And in two years' time, bring it up to about $5 billion in sales and have about, you know, basically it's exponential growth from there out and have about 3,000 people and across 13 countries. So that's the reason why for us at that point. Otherwise, alternatively, we had term sheets on the table for 40, 50, 60 million dollars. Mm-hmm. But again, we just saw that up can go fast. Wow. Interesting. What was it like? I mean, as a, there's a three of you, as I understand, three brothers. And you guys are there. You've got these term sheets in front of you. You guys are running just a mile a minute trying to keep up, I imagine. What were some of those discussions like? I mean, that's a, it's a rare place for a lot of entrepreneurs to get to. But there had to be in some experiences where you look back and go, perhaps we could have done that better. So I think every day you look back and it's something you could have done better at any stage of the business. So we try to live looking forward and, and in hindsight, I mean, shoulda, coulda, woulda never get us anywhere. So, but from a funding standpoint, the, some of the gotchas that we started to apply going forward, it's the first learning lesson we had or exposure to this is that there's such a variety of people in the world and likewise, there's a variety of investors. There's investors with big egos. There's investors who come in there and want to control your company. There's investors who basically have a lot of cash. They just want to sit back and push easy button. And it's really important for as a company to really get a sort of sense of gauge of what type of investor do you want for your objectives as a business and to find the right match. Now, that's easier said than done once you have built a business of traction and have demand. Now, if you're not in the driver's seat, then it comes down to be able to find ways to create that hype, to create that focus, that FOMO, the fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And that's everything. The moment that you get one investor in, another investor in, fighting each other, that's the, what you're trying to create, that FOMO experience. And without that, you're almost at the point where you don't really want to raise because it's your enterprise. So I just want to touch on oh, that yeah. because it is a very important aspect of fundraising is building tension. Mm-hmm. If you can build that tension among different investors and do it tactfully and not get caught off guard or called out for doing it, then you're going to win. You're going to be able to raise more money on better terms. But how were you able to do it? What was, you know, do you recall some of the things that happened that created that FOMO that led to, yeah, led to the success that you saw? Yeah, so simple tactics, the easy ones are like we call sales numbers. So even when simple things like talking about your revenue, you never talk about your today's revenue, you talk about your ARR, so you analyze yep. revenue, run rate. So you pump up your numbers to where they could be or, or think about where they're going to be at the fundraise time, all those small little tactics. Now, from an emotional standpoint, though, it's really important to try to think of it more of a stepping game. So early on, you want to find investors that will help you sell for the next round. So whoever you bring in as for the family or strategic, they need to be able to help you get the next fundraise. And you, from there, you get a larger funder and they help with that activity. So that's one area that really helps. And have the person advocate for you and to create credibility, it puts you at a higher pedestal than you would be otherwise. And then the beyond that comes to classic like sales leverage tactics. Um, if you look at, you put together a list of investors, they have a certain target investors you want to go for. The more you do research and understand what motivates them, their thesis, or more importantly, their competition, if you understand who they're kind of trying to go ahead against, you start you get a better sense of that, and then you start targeting them both in parallel. It helps make them vie for each other. So knowing that you know a billion dollar fund A is going after a billion dollar fund B, and they both have the same thesis and they're competitive, by having them both in parallel streams, they get a little bit of FOMO saying, "Well, what, the other person now bid us," you know. And even just simple tasks like that, it's people hours on this, but those create the perception that there's a real demand there, and that I can miss out. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I mean, well, you guys did that well, because as I understand, there was, 
I don't know if you could call it a bidding war, but there definitely was a lot of people who came to the table and wanting to give you money. And, you know, you get to a point where you can only take so much money at a certain valuation and, but you were in the driver's seat as I understand. So yeah, hell of a position to be in. I think it's, uh, well, it's the, the financiers or the one who's getting financed. It should be their dream of being in that position. Totally. I give my credit to my brother on this one here. He was the creative uh, kind of an investor artist here on this front, but uh, it was a team effort in terms of closing for sure. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. I have a friend who was in a position there that, how do I describe this best? She's with a company that was on the chopping block to get sold and had to go through the due diligence process with it. I mean, it's a challenge there because you collectively have to be a team and selling that together. What was the due diligence processes like for you guys and how did you get through them? And, and perhaps this is kind of a boring question to ask, but maybe there's a real key piece here that can help companies stand out, help entrepreneurs stand out and collectively as a team be recognized as a strong investment opportunity. Yeah. So I just laugh because uh, I can tell you some stories in terms of our experiences. It was, uh, it's basically summed up about having three sleepless nights and no showering. A lot of our accountants team did not had to get all the paperwork <laughs> done. But no, um, I think the, some early gotchas of wins to help the due diligence are, first of all, getting some advisory or get some people's knowledge in terms of how to structure your cap table from day one. How to think about fundraising, debt instruments, uh, investor, you know, investors earlier on. That makes all the difference in later rounds. And make sure you have things that are industry standard. The more industry standard you are, the easier and faster your due diligence will go. Hmm. Um, conversely, if you were to look at local, so in, in Calgary as an entrepreneur, oftentimes you go to Calgary lawyers, they don't have a lot of exposure to tech VC. And oftentimes these don't have the experience or the precedence, the comparables for to knowing what will be standard in, say, New York or the Valley when you need the larger rounds. So I'd say invest in that upfront and don't be too stingy about getting the right legal advice to make hmm. sure it's there. And then down the road, put in place systems of keeping good financial controls early on and throughout. And they're actually being diligent about enforcing those all add up. Because when it comes time to do a deal, you want to close it quickly. I don't want any surprises. So the more that you have all your paperwork on the spot, you're auditing, you're, you have the independent audit once in a while to make sure you sweep it clean, the less that comes an issue negotiation or you, know, you lose that hype. Hmm. Yeah. You know what, what this reminds me of is the way I look at it when you're going through this it's about giving a better user experience. You know, going through and having something as simple as, and it sounds just mundane as all hell, but a file structure in your data room for the due diligence that is so easy to understand that you give a better user experience, making sure your books are up to date. And I really do like your point here of finding standardization. And there would be even standardization in the legal relationships you have in the sense that a Silicon Valley or a startup lawyer understands the kind of things that high ticket VCs are going to be looking for and how to properly present them as opposed to, you know, somebody who is a good corporate lawyer, but has never been through that kind of deal. Yeah. And those are some examples of what Harvest brings here now, Corey, to Calgary and to the prairies. We're trying to give that playbook in terms of how to build that business scale it, how to think about not have less, to have less blind spots and knowing where they're going to be around the corner at each day of the business. And those are so fundamental, this early like, gotchas will set you up for on the right path to success. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's a perfect segue. Let's get back to Harvest and what you're doing there. And one of the questions that I have, and perhaps the answers I'm looking for, are some of the solutions that come to 
the innovation, or not the innovation problems, but the problem Canadian companies face with developing and creating world-class products, world-class services, and truly taking their innovation to, you know, beyond our borders. What are some problems that you see that we face and where are some of these solutions coming in? What should we be planning for, if you will? Well, from my perspective of what I've seen, well, we talk to many entrepreneurs on a daily basis, probably about maybe 10 or 12 uh, locally or internationally. And the common thread pattern you've seen in Canada last couple of decades, it still persists today, is that there is a very a too strong focus of thinking locally, not globally. So as entrepreneurs set out, a lot of Canadians don't have the international experience. And as you live in Toronto, you aren't even exposed to a tier one or tier two city on a global scale. Mm. So you aren't really exposed to be able to think bigger and broader about the global challenges, being that today's economy is global, and think to a local and solutions to product and even market. So that's a big one. And when it comes to talent, no difference. So a lot of the talent is drawn down to U.S., to other markets, a fourth experience. And unless that talent's come back, it's very tough to be able to have that inside experience to know when you're thinking too small locally versus thinking of the macro stage. So again, so think food delivery. Even ourselves, we start with a skip of dishes, but I think about food delivery for Saskatoon, for Regina, for small town cities. And it wasn't through quickly growing up that we had to start operating thinking at the global stage, thinking through, okay, how does this technology apply to New York? How does it apply to places? And if we didn't do that pivotal maturation early on, we would have been crushed by these competitors as it came to Canada. Hmm. Who was instrumental in helping you think bigger then? Was that, I mean, did your brother's experience in London help push that? Or what was, yeah, what was instrumental for you guys to start thinking of a bigger picture and actually building and planning for bigger. Definitely. I think, yeah. So taking Josh's experience in banking in London, he had prior to that spent a lot of his early career in doing like investment banking, microfinance in Bangladesh with doing trade missions with actually Clinton and stuff. He met with uh, other people in say, Vietnam for junior trade mission. Those type of things help expose me and my other brother about, you know, thinking bigger earlier on stage. And then my other founder, like a key to success for our team was the diversity of team and different perspectives. Andrew Chow, who's now CEO of Neo Financial for Fully Company Harvest, mm. he was doing consulting with the United Nations in Italy, for example, in the New York and, and in Toronto after that. So for us, getting exposure earlier on before jumping something was super pivotal for us to know what would come down the road after. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Wow. What a story. Now, maybe as a final question, or not a final question, but just to cap off on skip the dishes, you guys went through what was a, a very successful exit. How much was that again? And can you take us through how that all came through and yeah, what that was like? Yeah, so we exited for um, $100 million with a performance bonus of another $100 million. So that's tied to certain goals, objectives for earnouts. It's pretty, pretty common. So going through the process of exiting, it's somewhat similar to any investor raise at that stage, a series B, C raise in the sense that you have due diligence, you talk about terms and different kind of change control. For us, it's, of course, being an acquisition, you have a sole investor. So that's the biggest difference there. So from an entrepreneur's perspective. Now, what's different about this deal is that they're, they were a, going into become a FTSE 100 company. And with that, they have been a publicly traded company, especially in London Stock Exchange, is a little more risk averse, more conservative versus like the New York one. And so there's a lot more red tape and bureaucracy you have to go through. Being there's a $200 million is still small enough to get size that it didn't, you know, wasn't like in the billion dollar range so that we were able to go skirt under some of that red tape. But the experience of going through that, it went quite quickly. We, we had a bunch of different offers on the table again, and from like all the way from Amazon to other kind of competitors too, we're looking at us. 
And for us, we sold to Just Eat. We just, what really jumped for us was the people driving it at the time, culturally. We had a common alignment vision of what we want to do. And that's so key to facilitate a smooth transaction and have common interests and the synergy between our acquisition and their footprint. It was all made easier. In saying that, did you leave money on the table because of the cultural fit? Or was it just a nice to have plus the right size check? In our specific example, no, I think that everything kind of checked out in terms of where we're at that time now. In hindsight, of course, I mean, you can look back and now, I mean, two years' time later, it's then worth about a market rate cap at the public market, about two, three billion dollars. So, I mean, in hindsight, do we sell it early? Sure. But I mean, at the time, you never know what the market's going. Yeah, of course. was coming in, of course. But no, I think it aligned well. I think everybody kind of at the time was excited about and we did the right thing. And of course, the next few years played out differently. There's a lot of change in governance control, Justy, but that's a whole other story at the time. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Who facilitated or advised you through that sale? We had RBC Capital Markets help to do the deal in Artstein. That's what Josh did his banking beforehand. Josh had done a couple of IPOs in the past, so he had leveraged, largely leveraged his experience. And then we had a few other advisors pulled in for the deal. Their side, they also had some bankers on board, and the rest was internal teams to do the due diligence preparation, stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating. I guess in all that experience, what a ride. What's been probably the most interesting paradigm shift you've had or the, you know, the biggest learning that you took away from this whole experience that really guides what you're doing now? Yeah, there's so many. But uh, the one thing that is nice as you go through your life and career is that you you do change a little bit of how you approach problems and how you see perspective. That experience is really nice to draw upon. So a lot of the early mistakes we did at Skip in growing and hiring and trying to get people in place, we're able to leverage that. So the paradigm shift really for us is really about figuring out ways to rather than just do one company at a time, how do you take this and operationalize it into like a way that other companies can benefit and the people, entrepreneurs? So we're trying to really test our hypotheses and principles that we used at Skip and see if we can validate them on a more a larger scale to build to co-build four, five, six companies at a time instead of just doing just one. So it's interesting to go through that shift from, again, using our work in one company and try to bring it in parallels and translate it into many companies is something we're challenged with and trying to find innovative ways to do that today. Hmm. Wow. Very cool. Well, as we near the top of the hour, I know you got to jump. Chris, how can we uh, follow your work now and how can listeners get in touch with you or with Harvest should they want to? So we have a website, harvest.builders. It's harvest.builders. We have various different intake forms there or even job postings that people are interested in either joining companies that we're building or starting their own or even looking for services that feel that they want to take advantage of the experiences we have. That's the best way to find out more and to be able to apply and reach out to a team. We have about a 30-person team internally that watches that and will reach out immediately to see find ways that we can help grow together in a you know symbiotic way. If when it comes to government or it comes to other organizations in the ecosystem, again, do reach out. We're looking to team up. We aren't looking to compete. We're looking to really augment and fill in the voids in local ecosystems and be a kind of a partner. That's very important. And then if anybody else mentor advisors, anybody else investors too, we are looking for de- creating, generating more deal flow. So really about any stakeholder in the ecosystem, that's probably the best way to reach out to us and get in touch. Oh, fantastic. Well, Chris, thanks so much for taking the time. This has been really interesting and a lot of great value here. So I appreciate it. Corey, I appreciate the time and effort you've done this past year and a half in terms of bringing to light some of these stories. I mean, as an entrepreneur in back to Prince Edward, Saskatchewan, I would love to have this type of information. So really appreciate what you do and you're a big fan. Hey, thank you. Okay, thank you, Corey. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.